0: Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kerland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. So, Dominique, you've got a topic picked out
1: for us today. What are we going to be talking about? Well, you may remember that when uh, in one of our recent episodes, I briefly talked about two of my friends who kept raving about German Shepherds. Do you remember that? They were real fans of the breed and they kept going on and on about how special German Shepherds are and how loyal and smart. And that conversation stayed with me long afterwards. And I was Curious to see what behavior science had to say about it. I really wanted to parse it out. I knew there was some truth to what my friends were saying. I mean, humans have been selectively breeding domestic animals for a long time. We've bred cows that produce more milk and chickens that produce larger eggs and I mean just in the dog world there are hundreds of breeds that have been developed. The horse world's the same. You know one day I would love to do an episode on the history of horse breeding because I read some amazing things you know maybe we could spend some time with the ancestors of your favorite breed the Icelandic horses and Vikings and medieval English armored knights with their heavy destrier or I mean the history of breeding uh, with horses is really really interesting yes and it was the same you know they would look for certain qualities that made the horses better at their jobs so they wanted fast horse for carrying messengers and heavy horses for plowing and pulling heavy wagons and ponies to go into mines so I think that would make for a fun episode. But anyway, so the this idea that some characteristic breeds are born with some qualities, I thought, you know, it's a pretty reasonable idea. But my question was, what's the relative importance of genes in influencing behaviors compared to what an animal learns throughout its life? So that's what I've been During the past few days, I've gone back to my favorite behavior science textbooks and mentors. I've emailed Susan Friedman a couple of times, and I've really dived into that famous question, what's more important, nature or nurture? And that's what I would like to talk about today. And I want to also talk about why I think this question is important for the well-being of the animals under our care okay it's, it's it's not just a theory that i want to discuss you know i think this has impacts on what we do every day with our horses and our dog okay so you've been doing the research so yeah i right okay well you won't be surprised to hear that the first place that i went to for answers was paul chance's book learning and behavior okay and it just so happens that he addresses the nature versus nurture question right from the back in the very first chapter. Um, in his introduction, he talks about the fact that the world in which we live is constantly changing. And the history of humanity and our own personal history is about coping with change. And one way species cope with change is through natural selection. So interestingly, the very first person you mentioned in his book is not B.F. Skinner or Pavlov or Thorndyke. It's Charles Darwin. Okay. Did you know that Darwin was an animal breeder?
0: Uh, I don't know that I knew it as sort of top of the file, you know, in terms of things that I would say about Darwin off the top
1: of my head. I didn't know. I didn't know that he was. He was a breeder of dogs. I didn't know that. Anyway, he saw a lot of similarities between natural selection and men's artificial selection of domestic animal. You know, he taught the mechanism for change was similar, except that in the wild, the breeders is nature. And so when we think of natural selection, we usually think of physical characteristics. Nature also selects behavior. You know, the same pressures that select a physical feature like wings, for instance, can also select a behavior such as wind flapping. So if if a partridge that flaps the wings when attempting to climb trees are more likely to escape predators, then this behavioral tendency is as likely to be selected as are the wings. So behaviors too, not just the coat, and there are all types of I mean, a few types of of behaviors that nature select. I don't want to get too much into the technical of it, but some of them are very automatic and consistent in how they appear. Reflex would be part of that category. The blink of an eye when you get a puff of air. Others are more or less flexible. For instance, you know how typical, typically, our horses circle around before they lie down. Yes. You know that that would be part of that more flexible category of behaviors because no one one teaches our horse to do that or a dog covering the urine of another dog. Those are behaviors that are, you know, they're naturally performed by the members of a species without any prior experience. Um, It's the same, you know, with sea turtle babies, they move toward the ocean right after their birth. No one teaches that to them. Or a male peacock to spread its beautiful tail to attract a female, they come with that. Some other categories of behavior that are selected by nature are even more flexible than that. They call them behavioral traits. Fearfulness, aggressiveness are part of that category that, of behavior selected by nature. They can be quite diverse in the way they're performed by, when, by one animal or another, They can occur in a wide variety of situations. So for example, the way one wolf attacks can be very different from the way another one attacks. But whether they're more or less flexible, they still all have a strong genetic component. And and the reason why nature selects all those behaviors, as we all know, is because it helps the species cope with the demands of the particular environment. They help them find food, deal with threats or pass their genes. So, you know, it's easy to see how a behavior tendency such as fearfulness can contribute to survival. The the rabbit that flees the fox or may escape and go on to make more rabbit babies, whereas the rabbit that shows no fear and stays there, well, that one will become fox food. So it's pretty good, you know, for species adaptation except there's a problem. And it's a big problem. The problem is that natural selection is a very slow process. It occurs over many generations. So it's of limited value in coping with abrupt changes. And abrupt changes do happen. I'm sure you can think of one that this planet has just gone through. I can think of many that this
0: planet is going
1: through. Yeah. But certainly COVID, you know, is one abrupt changes that we couldn't wait for generations to adapt to. So there's a need for a mechanism that will allow us to change or animals to change, not over many generations, but within the lifetime of the individual's. And it just so happens that nature gave us that uh, mechanism and that's our ability to learn. So learning. (laughs) Paul Chance defines learning as a change in in behavior due to experience. So those are the behaviors that we clicker trainers work with every day. I mean, they're the ones that are very modifiable, that animals will acquire, that they will, that we can shape, you know, with smart antecedents and consequences. So we, we know those behaviors. And they're, you know, they, they die with us. They're not inherited, the, we, whatever we learned, our offspring will not know how to do. So it looks pretty straightforward, right? Innate behaviors on the one side and learned behaviors on the other side.
0: Well, I can tell by your (laughs) Cheshire Cat grin that there's another piece to this. So go ahead.
1: Yeah, this is where I think it becomes really interesting um, because it's not as simple as that. When we start to look closer and, you know, you were at at the last Clicker Expo, um, as you always are, and there were a few panels and discussions, uh, where we talked about this, and and I want to, I want to share those with uh, with the listeners. But just to explain the ideas, a lot of the behaviors that we thought were inherited are actually more about environment than we ever realized. Yeah. And they can be modified through contact with the environment in an individual's lifetime. So Uh, Paul Chance gives one example, or he gives a few, but there's one that I retained uh, from his book. So this one was a zoologist at the University of Oklahoma who compared the aggression of blue heron, the the birds, and egret chicks toward their siblings. So the egrets were more likely to kill their siblings than were the herons. So at first glance, it appears that egrets are innately more aggressive, but this zoologist performed an experiment to see if that was really the case. He switched, he had egrets raised by herons and herons raised by egrets. And he thought, you know, if the difference in siblings were just determined by genetics, that switch should have made no difference, but it did. The egrets showed the same amount of aggression to their siblings, but the herons showed more. And the difference was due to the behavior of the parents. Because the herons, they bring their young, large fishes that they can all share. But the egrets, they bring small fishes that each of the chicks can swallow whole if they can get them before their brothers and sisters. So the aggressiveness of the chicks was influenced by the environment. Susan Friedman sent me another research. And that one is about fear of predators. I mean, that's a trait that's often considered instinctive. Yet there are a lot of researchers apparently showing that it's a learned behavior and that it only develops when prey species share space with the animals who eat them. So this one, this research that Susan said was by a professor at the University of Montana and he compared the behavior of some prey species in location where their historic predators are still there and in places where the predators are no longer there he tested the reaction of the animals by playing recordings of wolves and tigers and as he expected in the absence of the predators the animals didn't show the kind of vigilance and clustering behavior and flight that is usually observed in those species living with their predators. So for instance, he tested Elks in in Siberia where they still live with wolves and bears and they responded five times faster to the recordings than did some Elks in a Colorado national park where the major predators have been absent for some 90 years. So the conclusion was if you take away the wolves, you take away the fear. I remember once we talked in one of our early, early podcasts about another example, which we see a lot of that in nature, really. Uh, we talked about, I don't know if you'll remember this, but birds who get better and better at uh, building their nests as they gain more experience.
0: Do you remember that? I don't remember you know, specifically the, comment, that podcast, the conversation, no. but uh, I can believe that we've talked about such a thing, mm. uh, probably in relation to something that came up with the barn swallows in in the barn or something because i think i've talked about how interesting i find watching them develop their nest building skills so uh, i can i can imagine
1: that would have come up well flight skill improve with practice yep. perching will improve with practice so in fact there are very few behaviors that can be said to be unchangeable Zoos are a place where we can see how adaptable wild animals can be. I mean, that panel discussions that you were part of that was called Let's Talk Other Species at the last Clicker Expo, where Ken Ramirez, Susan Friedman, there were a few other people. That was an amazing, for me, panel. It was fun. I love that discussion. Yeah, it was really great. And Ken, who has consulted with many zoos around the world, gave a few excellent example of how flexible animals can be. He mentioned, for example, I think they were birds, some nocturnal animals, which had learned to work during the day in the zoos. And uh, he talked about alligators who normally eat once every 10 days and who were trained to eat every day. So the the trainers started cutting down the food in smaller pieces and they increased the frequency of the meals per week. And by the end of a month, that's not a lot of time. The alligators were eating every day. They completely changed their pattern, except he said when they were going into torpor, then they quit eating and the trainers just didn't uh, force it. But I mean, it's pretty amazing. Usually, you would give a whole animal, and you know, I I saw one of a, another. You weren't you weren't uh, in this um, uh, other presentation. Susan showed us. I don't remember the name of the the presentation, but there were demos in in a zoo, um, and there was one demo where the girl was feeding little pieces to an alligator to making it move you know out of the enclosure to in an area where he would have had some husbandry done she had the the fish tied to her ankle <laughs> because in a little bucket because it was um, more convenient she said <laughs> i mean i don't know if i would hey. do that but <laughs> but still i mean she was feeding these little pieces you know to the alligator so there may be biological restrictions, but they're far fewer than we think. There's, there's a lot of study uh, studies finding animal population, doing things that are not expected. In that other presentation, Susan Friedman uh, gave us another example. She talked about a type of um, spider monkeys living in Brazil. They're called Muriqui monkeys. And they're studied by a primatologist named Karen Stryer. They have these really long limbs and a tail that they use to hold on to tree branches so they can find a neat food up there in the trees where they're safe. But their behavior is changing. Um, most likely due to the fact that their habitat is being disturbed. And although there are very few, they are an endangered species because the density of monkeys are increasing in the fragments of forests that are left. So like I said, these spider monkeys, they're known to spend most of their time in trees. But in this study, they were observed spending more and more time on the, on the ground. They were drinking, they were resting, feeding, playing, they were even mating on the ground. And Susan said it was a surprise for some people who I assume are more on the nature side of the question. But for Susan, who's a behavior scientist, it wasn't surprise at, surprising at all to see that the environment plays the more important role than anyone yeah,
0: used there, to do. Examples after examples after examples of this. I mean, we live on a much more, we'll say a much more intelligent planet than many of us were culturally led to believe. I mean, there's that wonderful example from uh, Sapolsky, primatologist who wrote um, Why uh, Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, and he was studying baboons in right. Uganda, and baboons are known for their aggressive behaviors within their, within their troops. And they are uh, very much a male dominated Mm. uh, social group. And in this particular situation, the baboons were feeding at a, a, a dump and there was infected meat and the male baboons got sick and the males in the troop died.
1: Okay. And so female were
0: left. So the females were left. And, and you would assume that as new males came in, because there would have been young adults from the, just the general area who would have moved into that troop. But when they moved in, the females treated them very differently. And okay. for, I think, several generations, there was a very lovely, sweet, gentle a non-aggressive troop, fascinating. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I mean, really yeah. fascinating when you think of how known for aggression baboons are.
1: They are. Yeah. As a matter of fact, those those mariki monkeys apparently they're very different in that uh, sense because they they're very egalitarian type of monkeys. Uh, they're they're not aggressive. Um, so I think that's one of the main interest of her study Karen Stryer with them they they're like hippie monkeys peace and love
0: (laughs) there's another there's another and I I can never remember the name of the book I think
1: it was called
0: personality and it was one of those you know things that I always refer to it as airplane reading where uh there was a very good store in uh Portland airport that had a good science section and it was sitting in the science section. It was the sort of thing you could read on an airplane. And if you fall asleep midway through, it doesn't really matter, which is what happens on airplanes. And the, the question that was being posed is why should there be this range of personality traits within a population? So mm-hmm. why within a population would you have say an individual who is particularly v- vigilant because that, that individual who's particularly vigilant is spending lots of time watching for predators, which may be a good thing, but yeah. they're not eating as much. So they may be at a disadvantage in some situations because they're spending too much time saying, oh, oh, oh predator, predator, right. and not enough time uh, ingesting enough energy. And so, you know, it's like, why... Why would you? And then you have other individuals who are sort of laid back and, you know, not particularly vigilant. And why are all these traits maintained within it?
1: Or you have the ones that are risk taking. Yes. And they will probably eat more than the others, but they may also get eaten more. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So
0: apparently there are, they have bred strains of mice that, uh, for research purposes, that exhibit so you can breed really fearful mice right or really bold mice. Yeah. And that's what she was studying, one of these strains of yep. mice. Yeah. That's interesting in and of itself that you can you can breed
1: personalities, animals. yeah. Right. Right. And
0: and of course, in these research labs, they're manipulating these genetic
1: lines. Activity level is another one, you know, where we we know there are some breeds of dog that are, you know, lap dogs that are great for someone who's looking for a very laid back dog. But, you know, if you get a border collie, (laughs) there's more activity. So the level, I mean, and of course, we will end this discussion with the study of one. Yeah. yeah. So her her
0: conclusion for this little piece was that mm. when you have times of great abundance, where there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of food resources available to you, the mouse that is fairly cautious and doesn't venture out very far can sort of poke its nose out of its hole, get enough to eat, get back in and survive because they're not exposing themselves to a uh, high predator risk because they're so cautious and they're getting enough food that they will be able to rear their young and, and their offspring will uh, survive to reproductive age during times of great abundance. But during times when there is food stress, that mouse that is a little on the cautious side mm-hmm. and isn't willing to go very far from its hole, is not going to be able to find enough food to raise as many young, and it's not going to do as well in the uh, evolutionary gene pool. But the Mm. mouse that's very bold, who's going off and exploring, well, in the times of abundance, all of that exploring puts them at greater risk of being found by predators. So they may lose out in times of great abundance relative to the other mouse but the mouse that when there's uh times of scarcity the mouse that is bold enough to go further is going to find more of what it needs and may actually end up raising more young and so both of those traits will be maintained within the population
1: and i thought that makes sense. And probably both of these traits, like we just said, will either be enhanced or diminished through um, you know, the 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 more cautious individual may very well learn to be a little bit take a little bit more risk because they need to find the food. And yes. so these things, you know. Um, Susan said in that in that one in that panel, the one you were on, she said the one most empowering piece of information we can share is that it is our animals' nature to be flexible. Learning is part of their and our biology. Yes. So back to my original question, which is more important. In explaining behavior, is it nature or is it nurture? Well, it looks like it's both nature and nurture. You know, in learning and behavior, Paul Chance writes that asking which one is more important in determining behavior, heredity, or environment is like asking which one is more important in determining the area of a rectangle. Is it width or length? You know, the, the big misunderstanding about nature versus nurture has been that it's an either or proposition in which genetic and environmental contributions are being separated. Instead, it's always nature and nurture. It's always genes and environment working together. And all behavior, reflects a blending of both so complex and intricate that it's impossible to say where one begins and the other one ends. They're both different aspects of the same process coping with environmental change through adaptation. Adaptation through heredity occurs slowly over generations at the species level. Adaptation through learning is an individual process that occurs within the short span of a lifetime. So where does that take us in terms of training? Why is that important for us? Why should we care? Most of us aren't biologists reintroducing predators into ecosystems. We're just horse owners wanting to do cool stuff with our horses or pet owners wanting to have a nice companion in our home. Well, I think it's it's useful to be aware that they're both can influence behavior because it'll help us improve the care and the well-being of our animals. First of all, knowing about the tendencies of our, our, our animal species or breeds can make us better at predicting, interpreting, managing many of their behaviors I remember once you told me a story about a really good dog trainer that you that was attending one of your clinics. And at the end of the clinic, you allowed this person into the arena for a little bit of horse training. And that turned into a dangerous situation pretty quickly. Do you remember that? I do remember that she was training
0: the horse the way she would have trained a dog. And it was not a good thing. She was not maintaining the balancers that kept keeps a horse
1: from crowding into you. She didn't know how to interpret the situation. She didn't know the species. She didn't know how to manage it. So I think that knowing those tendencies, first of all, is helpful. And then I think that when we, we keep in mind the natural behaviors Rather sometimes than attempt to change the animal, we can arrange the environment to accommodate some of those behaviors, especially the ones that we find not so desirable. You know, give an outlet to some of those natural behaviors instead of trying to change the animal. For example. Uh, So give an example. Or you have a terrier. They like to dig. You know, they've been selected for that. Or or you have a a border collie. Your daily job is to have a a kindergarten with a lot of kids running around. (laughs) And and again, you know, we'll end this conversation with the, the fact that every learner is an individual learner. And when we're training, we need to focus on the learner in front of us, but we'll get there. But I think that when you know uh, some of those behaviors, you can make a little sandbox for your terrier in the backyard and do some games in there. When they can, they can dig, and not be punished for it. Or, you know, some people do. They have border collies or sheep dogs. And they do these games, like you know, herding activities, not necessarily with actual sheep, but they organize herding activities so the dog can do what he would naturally do. So where where are you taking this? I think there's another reason why we have to understand innate behaviors because it it will guide us to the general limits of what our animals can reasonably be expected to learn. So you'll have to bear with me for another few minutes because even though we know that we can do a lot to modify behaviors by designing clever antecedents and consequences, there are limits to learning. And I think it's useful to understand some of those limits. Obviously, there are are some physical limitations, a pig cannot fly, a dog cannot breathe under the water, so, but that's pretty obvious. What I'm more interested in is, are there limitations to what an animal can learn because of his his instincts? And there's an an article um, on this topic written by the Braillants, Of course, you know very well the Braillants. They were students of BF Skinner and they were expert animal trainers. So they used operant procedures to train hundreds of animals to perform all kinds of things in TV commercials and country fairs and shopping centers. So for example, they had Priscilla the pig who would turn on a radio, eat breakfast at a table, pick up dirty clothes and run a vacuum cleaner so these guys knew what they were doing, but they sometimes had difficulty in getting certain tasks um, done by their performers, their animals. Uh, in the article, they described the case of a raccoon. You may have heard this because apparently it's a very classic. It's a classic article. Yes. So they wanted to teach the raccoon to pick up some coin and put it in a metal box that served as a bat. And the raccoon quickly learned to pick up the coin and carry it to the box, but it seemed to have a lot of difficulty letting go of the coin. He would rub it up against the inside of the container, pull it back out, clutch it firmly for several seconds. And none of this was being reinforced by the trainers. It might, you know, you might think, well, maybe it was just too complicated for the raccoon, but. The raccoon had no trouble learning other equally complex tasks. And it was not just the raccoons. Time and again, the Brailins had trouble getting animals to perform certain act that should have been easy. And in some cases, they would manage to teach the animal to perform the desired behavior, only to find that the acts later broke down. So why did this occur? The Brailins suggested that innate tendencies, interfered with learning. Apparently in the wild, raccoons dip their prey into the water and then they rub it between their paws as if washing it. It appears that this natural behavior interfered with teaching the raccoon to drop coins into a bank. So after the Brailins, there were other researchers who began to report evidence that animals showed certain talent for learning some things and were more resistant toward learning other things. And this has been described as a continuum of preparedness. So an animal comes to a particular learning situation, either genetically prepared to learn the task in question, in which case learning will proceed quickly, or unprepared to learn it, in which case learning will proceed steadily, but more slowly, or contra-prepared in which case the course of learning is slow and irregular. And when I think of that, the con- that continuum of pre- preparedness, you know, I can't help but think how easy it was to teach my Shetland dog to stay still at a distance or even when I'm out of sight, and how much more difficult it was to teach my horses to stand still at a distance. Because, you know, herding dogs, they're used to being immobile for a very long time. And, you know, they they stalk the sheep. And so it's a very natural thing for them to do. Whereas a horse to stay immobile away from his herd, I think is not very natural. And so I think maybe this can explain it. But, you know, what I'm thinking even more of is, Let's say you have, let's go back to our German Shepherds. And and we know, I mean, generally, as a breed, because they've been selectively bred to protect houses and families, etc., they're reserved towards strangers. So if you're a German Shepherd's owner, and you insist that your dog be petted by all strangers, and things keep falling apart despite your best efforts, I think it's a good idea to reflect on the fact that maybe this animal's genetic has prepared him for something else. And you could maybe orient your expectation. uh, you, You could have more reasonable expectation for the kind of behavior that this animal can do.
0: Yeah, so maybe he's a a great guide dog, but not a great, let's take him to the hospital and have everybody pet him in the
1: hospital dog. Exactly. Maybe he's not the one. And of course, we know that behavioral preparedness to learn will vary greatly between individuals. And we have to remember that any particular German shepherd may exhibit the friendly behaviors of the average golden retriever. We know individuals of the same species are known to vary from one another and from the expected behavior behavioral norms of their breed or species, which is why Susan Friedman keeps reminding us that behavior study of one. Um, each animal is an individual, with their own likes, their own dislikes, their own ability to learn, their own learning history. So what works for one individual may not work for another of the same species or breed. Um, But I still think that it's useful to keep it in the back of our mind. You know, Susan says, you know, that the average behavior can float in the back of your mind when, when you're training but you should always custom fit your training to the individual in front of you. She says, I love how she phrases it. She says, when we train an individual, we must change our focus from the species level to the individual level and from innate responses to learned responses.
0: Yes, that's a good way of phrasing it.
1: Yeah, and we know this. It's the individual in front of us right now in this particular context, because those preferences may even change for the same individual over time due to experience, to age, to whatever. So that's why I think it's, you know, we don't talk a lot about these things because for me anyway, since I've I've started 10, 10, 12, 13 years ago, I've been so, so into learn, learn behaviors. And so much, I believe so much that we can do, we can modify behaviors that can be quite resistant if we do it well with errorless learning. But I still think it's useful to know that, you know, innate behaviors do exist and they do influence uh, behaviors. They do influence. So we we, we have to take it into account, I think, for the well-being of the animals under our care.
0: Well, and they can also, you know, you think that, oh, I'm going to buy a nice, quiet, pick a breed of dog or pick a breed of of horse. I'm going to buy this nice, quiet. Friendly golden retriever. Friendly golden retriever type, <laughs> because that's what I'm looking for. And you end up with. A different with, shepherd personality. Yes, yes. And yeah. And it's all, so you always have to to work with the individual who yeah. is in front of you. But you know it, it makes me think of something that I've always said about Panda. You know, Panda was the first miniature horse that I really got to know to any and, and work with to any great extent. And she was just phenomenal. You could You could skip the first three quarters of every training book. No, because she just wasn't worried about the things that most horses are worried by. Um, environmental stimuli, no big deal. She wasn't worried. We could go out for, for walks. She could go for rides in the car. We could take her anywhere. And she took everything in stride. She didn't spook easily. She did not spook. When, okay. In the time that I was working with her, there was oh, there were two things that worried her. One, and this, so this was over a period of several years, and she's going into just, you name it, she's there. I mean, two weeks into her training, I was presenting at a conference in downtown Boston, and she went with me, and we, we I presented in the uh, Prudential Center. So she's traveling as a 10-month-old foal, uh, with me, going into an elevator, going up an elevator, going into the conference room. And then I stopped in a trade show. And you know what a zoo trade shows can be. And I yeah. was chatting with uh, the people at the Sunshine Books booth, Garen Pryor's booth. and um, And Panda decided to lie down and take a nap. And people mm. were stepping over her as she was just sacked out taking a nap. That is so you know, remarkable in terms of what we would normally expect of of a horse, never mind Mm. a baby horse. So Mm. she just wasn't bothered by things. And the the first thing that ever bothered her were roofers. Um, There was a house in the neighborhood where people were up on a roof, repairing the roof, and she sort of stared at it and (laughs) and stopped and, and had a good look and then went on with me. And the next day, they were still up on the roof, and she paid no attention. She processed it. It was fine. And the other thing that, that startled her was a, a house down the road had a German Shepherdy sort of mixed breed dog that was tied out. And uh, the first mm-hmm. time that we encountered it, it had been behind a tree, and it jumped out barking and lunging. And we both startled at that one. Fair enough. But after that, she walked right by that house, didn't bother. So she was extraordinary. And I always thought, you know, we should be, and I know that the minis were bred down. They were selected for their size. They were not particularly being selected for their temperament. But wouldn't it be fascinating to breed them up and see if that this amazing personality ability to handle a huge range of environmental conditions if that remained because boy is she ever the sort of horse that most of us would love to ride
1: right right you know, you know i i read the because uh, i know you like icelandic horses and um apparently they in iceland they uh there were no predators no
0: they have been without
1: predators for a thousand years Exactly. So they they don't spook very easily, apparently, because of that trait that's been passed on. Yeah. They don't, I don't know if that's still true today, because of course, you know, the environment will change those traits. If the predators are are back or are there, um, they will learn to spook, you know, because like we said before, fear can protect them from predators. Well, our two Icelandics came
0: from Iceland. And they were phenomenal horses, just phenomenal horses. And they didn't, they, you know, their spooky tendencies were so different from other horses. Hmm. And I just, they they were just extraordinary. Um, Sindri was, he was just extraordinary. And I've always said that, you know, and people say, oh, do you work with stallions? And my first reaction is always to say no. And then I always have to stop myself and say, oh, wait a minute, I ride a stallion. You know? Yeah. And we, you work with a lot of stallions at <laughs> yeah. Cavalia. Yeah. But, but my, you know, my general reaction is, well, no, I mm. I don't, I don't, you know, I haven't, because I've never worked at a on a breeding farm, that sort of thing. So my my first reaction is always to say, no, I don't work with stallions, and then I have to do this double take of, but I do, I, I had, one of uh, my, uh, my riding horses was a stallion, but he was so mm. different from what most people think of when you say stallion that I just, it's like, it's a different category.
1: Well, I think, you know, a lot of stallions in the world are the way they are, not because they were born that way, but because of the way they're kept, you know, they're taken out of a box only when it's time to breed and they don't have a normal horse life that they should have. I know a lot of breed. well, not a lot, but I know a few breeders in Europe where the horses, the stallions, they have a very normal life and they're just like any other horses. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And the Icelandic stallions that I have met, it's not a huge sample size, but it's still reasonable. They've all been very similar to Sindri. Very easy to be around horses. And I often wonder if in part... It's not the genetic component, but it is how they are handled because Icelandic Mm. horses are not that big. So Mm. is it that people are not as afraid of them and Mm. therefore handle them very differently than they would one of the North American or European breeds that are much bigger?
1: You know, that was actually one of my questions when I heard my two friends speaking about the German shepherds, you know, because I kept thinking know they say how protective and there were all these anecdotes I mean one of the anecdotes was that she, the the woman she she was very pregnant um, and she fell in the snow and she her, her German child Shepherd was back at the house tied to a rope, apparently, and she screamed and he came to her and he digged her out of the snow. I mean, they had all these amazing yeah. anecdotes, you know, they they were really fans of the breeds, like I said. But, you know, I, I kept wondering. Well, I don't know a lot of drug dealers who would use a golden retriever to protect (laughs) their premises, you know? Is that what happens? Is it because people who are attracted to those breeds are going to enhance those traits so much so that it's much more the environment than the actual uh, temperament of, of the dogs? And it's true that you kind of see a category of people attracted to a certain category of of dogs or breeds and again I think it is a a sign of the fact that it is both nature and nurture because those categorization of breed temperament I think they're good they're pretty useful I love those books and those websites where you go and you see oh what's the temperament of this dog and the activity level I think when you're looking for a dog you know for your family dog well, yeah, it's a study of one, but knowing those tendencies, you you increase your chances that it'll be a better fit. It may not be, you may right. have the one individual that is, because we know that the, the, the norm or the behavior average is like a bell curve, let's say, and that, well, your horse may be at the very beginning of the bell curve, You know, you didn't want a horse that barks, and so you got this breed, and unfortunately, you got the one individual who barks. But still, you know, it gives you, if you do want a horse or a dog that everybody on the walk will pet, maybe it's not a good idea to get a German Shepherd. We know socialization can do wonders, and a well socialized German Shepherd can be quite friendly, but as in general, we know they are more reserved with strangers. Whereas a golden retriever, they're best friends with everyone they meet, generally. That, that takes me to more,
0: you know, panda stories. So, uh, and panda's owner uh, had a, a German shepherd uh, guide dog who actually ended up. She had two that, both of them, ended up not being successful and had to be returned to the schools. But it was very interesting to see people's response to the shepherds when Anne was uh, using them as her guides. There was a lot more. Oh, you know, mm. do you really have to bring that animal in here? <laughs> and there was not a lot of. Uh, oh, isn't that wonderful? Uh, a German shepherd guide dog is coming in. Can I, you know, can I come in? And, and, can you know, I say hello? Um, but once once Panda was her guide, mm. it, there was, I mean, the doors were, were wide open. Oh, mm. please come in. Absolutely, please come into our store. Mm. bring panda in here let me give you the best table in the restaurant can i pet her right response to uh this cute little
1: miniature horse was so very different well i i I don't go to a german shepherds i don't know i won't approach because yeah they have that reputation of being you know more they are protective that's what they've been selected for
0: for years our responses have an impact on yeah. the behavior that that we provoke from an individual. So I remember also Gregor, the Dutch warm blood stallion who is in in uh, the lesson number three, the head lowering DVD. This was a, a horse who was, he was bred to be an Olympic level athlete. So he was bred in Europe, he was supposed to be one of the great superstars. And I think a lot of the the training is not keeping up with what is being bred, so they are in in Europe. They are breeding these absolute superstar athletes who have all of this mm-hmm. energy and athleticism, and the some of the older style training methods just are not ideal for these horses. I'll put mm-hmm. it that way, and so Gregor, we know. As a three-year-old, when he was started, uh, when they were starting him into work, was beaten to try and suppress all of that amazing spirit that he had. Mm-hmm. And no, he was beaten because uh, Sarah's husband, at the time, was working at the farm and saw what was done.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so, Gregor's response was to become aggressive, mm-hmm. super aggressive. And when I first saw him, I was really glad that that <laughs> that there was uh, that there were solid metal bars between the two of us mm. because his aggressive displays were extreme and he was a very menacing, very frightening horse. Mm. And so Sarah and and everything that had been that he had been taught by humans was basically tainted. It was poisoned. You put a lead rope on and that was something he needed to fight. Anything that was sort of standard horse training, he would need to fight because that was his, that was his experience Mm -hmm. That, that people had hurt him and he was going to defend himself. So Sarah taught him trick behaviors. So she taught him to blow bicycle horns and uh, to give people kisses. The first time I saw this this incredibly powerful, magnificent, but very aggressive horse um, giving kisses on the side of someone's face, it was like, Mm -hmm. okay, that's like putting your head in the tiger's mouth. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The point of it was that when gregor was offering all of these cute behaviors people responded to him completely differently Mm. and their body language did not provoke the aggressive displays so they weren't cueing aggression Mm. which was really interesting so and the way in the way into him was not through traditional training, but it was in through the trick training because it was the only clean slate
1: that we had to work with. Yeah. You know, for sure. I mean, we, I think, because I wouldn't want people to think that I'm advocating for thinking oh, you know, this is his breed, this is who he is, there's nothing to do, we can do about it, you know, that's how German shepherds are, and so there's nothing, it's not worth trying to socialize, or that is not what I'm trying to say. Um, with with this conversation today, I think, like I said, very few, if any, behaviors are immutable, even reflexes, you know, if, if a door slam, if the wind slams a door, you'll, you'll startle, you'll jump. But through habituation, even reflexes can be changed. If that door slams every 10 seconds for five minutes, you probably won't respond after a minute anymore.
0: When the goats first came to the barn, and I haven't really thought through that thoroughly, and they're living on uh, the lean-to that's on the side of the arena. And so I now have, I, I have animals moving around on the other side of that wall that the horses cannot see and furthermore they're goats so goats make interesting uh, noises. You know, noises they jump up <laughs> on things they uh headbutt occasionally they right. you know, they they uh jump around and sometimes uh you know repel off the walls whatever and initially the horses were going oh, oh, oh we can't what you know, jumping and and now totally you know ignore them and you I can be riding right up next to that wall and the goat will jump into the wall and we neither one of us flinch. So yeah, the, these you know what actually is a reflex. Um, that's another interesting discussion, but we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. But these you know we we learn. If you didn't learn and change and adapt. You would be either, you would be expending energy that you don't need to, to expend and you would not be successful in acquiring the resources that you need to acquire to survive and mm. reproduce. Yeah. And we step into that, you know we step into that mix with strong cultural biases. I would say this is changing and it's been changing now for for a while. But I would say the cultural bias that was very strong, certainly when I was little, was that instinct ruled most. Yeah, figure. I know. And the example that was often given was that of a spider. You know, the spiders just know
1: how to- how to Build spider, a, their, to their, build their a web. Yeah. And, and, and they all do it the same way. And they and all do it the same way. Except it's that very they, automatic and stereotypical.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was a way of separating humans from other animals. Look, our behavior is flexible and it's based, you know, it comes from our great intelligence and all of these other animals are just uh, behaving on instinct. And now what we are seeing as we look with more open eyes, we see the enormous, we see the enormous intelligence that exists around us and which you know means i think even more that we need to treat this planet with a lot more uh, care and love than we currently are because the all the different life forms that exist on this planet are just so amazing so amazing including our wonderful horses that the more we really look the more amazing we see that uh, this planet is this is not only a great place to stop but it also gives me the perfect lead-in to what i want to share with you next over the last couple months i've been totally absorbed by the creation of this year's clinics i've changed the format entirely and I built a series of clinics that I just are, I'm just gonna be really excited to be able to share with you. But that's actually not what I want to talk to you about. I'll be updating you on the clinics in the coming weeks. But this week, I want to talk to you about something that's related to the Horses for Future podcast. That's the other podcast that I do. Last fall, it had to go into a bit of a hiatus because I was just swamped. I just simply didn't have enough hours in the day to get everything done, and something had to give. And that something, the easiest thing, was just to uh, stop for a little while the Horses for Future podcast. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, this is a podcast about what horse people can do to help in the climate change crisis. The idea behind it is a simple one. Our horses are grazing animals, which means that as a community, horse people have a lot of land. And the more we learn about how to manage our pastures well, the better it is for our horses. Healthy pastures helps to create healthy horses. That's a pretty straightforward win-win situation for us. But healthier pastures also lead to greater biodiversity and they also contribute to better water management, to better soil health, and ultimately to sequestering more carbon. So there's a lot that we can learn as horse people that can contribute, even if it's in a small way, to helping to mitigate the climate change crisis. And that's what the Horses for Future podcast is about. But last fall, I just, as I said, I just did not have time for everything. So I decided that I had to let that go for a little bit. I'd produced 50 podcasts. And in the course of that, I, I had learned a lot. And I had basically covered the things that I think were really important to say but there are still things that from time to time that I want to share. So the temptation is to do an occasional Horses for Future podcast, but instead I've decided to share here at the end of Equosity. So just imagine that you've Shuffled forward in your playlist, and you're now listening to a Horses for Future podcast. If it's of interest, great. If not, I'll see you all next week with the next Equosity episode. What I want to share is a project that my good friend Manda Scott is going to be offering beginning in May of 2022. Manda is a vet. She's a best-selling author of historical fiction, and she's very much a climate crisis activist. And for the past couple of years, she's produced her own podcast, Accidental Gods. And now she is launching a new project, which is called Topia. And I'm going to let Manda tell you what that is. But let me share with you first why I wanted to bring this to you here. We've talked a lot about constructional training. In the most recent science camp that just finished up um, middle of February, that was the main organizing structure of the training. Constructional training is the big umbrella under which I've structured my new clinics. And constructional training begins by asking this first key question. Where do you want to go? What is the outcome that you were looking for? If you got everything right, what would that look like? How would you feel? What would you be doing? You know, we ask these questions when we're looking at the training of our horses. What is the outcome that we're looking for? Where do we want to go? What would that look like? But when you think about it, constructional training impacts every aspect of our lives. It impacts from the little things to the big things. Suppose you're at the grocery store thinking about what you need to get for dinner. If you got it right, what would that look like? What would you be putting in your shopping cart? For me, that's a fairly simple answer because I just shop for one person, but suppose you're shopping for your whole family. If you got it right what would that look like because you'd be needing to meet the needs of more individuals and you'd be thinking about your family budget and how much time you want to expend on food prep and you would be maybe you're thinking about should i be buying these apples or should i get the organic apples should i get this more expensive olive oil that comes in a glass container? Or should I buy this less expensive brand, but it comes in a plastic container? You know, all of these things matter. You know, do, if I if I broaden it out even more and I think about, you know, should I buy from this fair trade brand because they, they treat their farmers well, they treat the workers well, or does that not matter and I'm just going to buy from this big conglomerate corporation because they produce cheap food. I mean, there's so many factors into getting it right. And it's just deciding what you want to buy for dinner. And then, you know, there are the bigger questions. You know, if you were looking for a new job and there's the constructional question again, if you got it right, what would it look like? Our horses are training grounds for this type of thinking. We know that getting it right means that everyone's needs are met yours, your horses, your other family members who might like to see you now and then and not necessarily in the barn, that all of those needs are met. And not only are the needs of each individual met, but really what begins to happen is what they want begins to converge. So when we start out, we may not know how to get where we're going. That's the next question. But asking the first question helps us to figure out the rest. Where are we going? And then you get to the second question, which is, how are you going to get there? When we get good at this constructional training approach, we can begin to tackle the larger, more complex situations, such as, what am I going to buy at the grocery store? Which turned out to be a lot more complex than I was originally thinking. No, we live in a very complex world. We live on a complex planet. And Manda is tackling one of the biggest, most complex and most pressing issues of our day, which is the climate change crisis. She's asking if we got it right, what would it look like? And then a really important question is how would we get there? So that's the introduction. I'm going to let Manda tell you the rest. Her new project is called Thrutopia. That's T-H-R-U-T-O-P-I-A, Thrutopia. And for many of you, this may be a really exciting opportunity, especially for those of you who are writers or work in some of the other creative fields. It's a really neat opportunity that... Manda is creating both an opportunity to learn and an opportunity to make a difference. So I'll let Manda tell you the rest. So tell me about Thrutopia.
2: The easy way is I'm trying to write a near future novel, 2024, of how do we get from where we are to where we need to be and, and having to work out how, exactly how, if we want a better system, what does the better system look like and how do we get there? Not just wave a magic wand and everybody goes, yeah, that's obviously better. right. Um, And it's hard. And if I hadn't been doing the podcast for the last couple of years, I would have no clue. I've spent two years every week talking to somebody who's thinking really hard about this in their own area and then stitching it all together. And I have a reasonable idea. And so the realization dropped that we need not just me doing this, we need everything. We need every soap opera on the television for the characters to be thinking forward to a different future that is a, a good future, not the business as usual, let's pretend nothing's happening or the whole, don't look up kind of, you know, catastrophic. Yeah. Yeah. Fantasy. Cause
0: that's, that's, it seems like every time you turn around, there's some other disaster, novel, disaster, film, disaster, whatever. Here's the world yeah, exactly. after it's exactly. fallen
2: apart. Yes, yes. And, yes. and we yeah. get, you know, we know, you know, as a behaviorist, so you get what you aim for. Yeah why are we doing this to ourselves? And it doesn't work. You know, we've, we've had, what, 50, 60 years of people going, oh my God, climate change, it's going to be terrible. Look, it's going. To, this is how bad it's going to be. And it hasn't made any difference. We're not right. fixing stuff. Frightening people into fixing stuff. You frighten people and they go, okay, I don't want to see it. It was a very interesting, one of the, the kind of light bulb moments for me was around COP26, which happened in Glasgow, my home city this year, right. last year. And so just for once, even the right wing newspapers in this country had something about climate change on the front page for the opening of COP. And so you go to the village shop, which is a lovely place inhabited by elderly, retired people who are running it as a voluntary thing. And they all read the daily mail, which is our version of Fox news and newsprint. And, and so I look, I said, Oh look, the mail climate change. And they actually turned away. and went, we don't want to look, it's too distressing. And I thought, that's that's why we're getting nowhere is that ordinary average people have 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 internalized things are going to be really bad but no one has given them the okay so this is what we can do that isn't just okay stop driving your car don't buy anything and they haven't built a future that feels good where everyone can go yeah i want that that i would be glad to leave that to my kids and my grandkids i would be glad to run for that that feels like something i could go for and we do it with everything else you know we build ourselves whenever you know you've watched enough people buy horses everyone gets a new horse and they've got this picture in their mind yeah. of they're going to be the perfect rider and this is going to be the perfect horse and i'm sure you know people i certainly know people who went through dozens of horses like that because the problem with that picture is they can actually do the work together right but um but everybody does it it's what we do is we build pictures but people haven't been given the tools to build the there. pictures of a generative future they just don't yeah. know how it could work so anyway so that is why so i sat down and figured out okay so what can we do and what we've got in the end it, so three i thought we needed three things we need the ideas generator we need the think tank that makes it happen we need the narrative incubator we need a, i need to bring together a group of people who are into writing in whatever form i don't care novels film scripts, poetry, blogs, you know, blogs are really important. I don't care if you're writing letters to the local parish newspaper, or just diaries, things that people will want to write and then talk about. And you don't have to have been published. That's the, I don't care if people are already published. I would care that they want to come and do this. Right. Get enough people together to create a critical mass. Because what I'm, so what we're going to do is starts on May 1st, which is a Sunday. So Sunday evening, UK time, 6 till 9. So someone will come along, starting off with a guy called Rob Hopkins, who set up the Transition Town Network and, and then wrote a book called From What Is to What If, and his podcast the same. He really gets it, and he's a brilliant speaker. They'll talk for up to half an hour on the giving. The remit is, give us a vision of the 2030s, if we got it right, if we made the good decisions now. How is it? What does it feel like, look like? How does it work in your field, whatever your field is? And... Then we got half an hour of questions from the Zoom room and then the speaker can bugger off if they want to. Some of them really want to stay, which is really cool. Um, we'll take a quarter hour break because I And then we'll have a 90 minute masterclass where we'll take the ideas. And obviously through the weeks, there'll be more ideas. And I've got a what if question for each each topic, but really look at in small groups and bigger groups, crafting narrative. You know, can you create a character based on what you just heard and then I'll put you in a room with three other or four other people and you'll create a scene with each involving each of your characters interacting in the way that we just heard. And what are the pitfalls? Because what you need to know as a writer is to have the ideas and then part of being a writer is stitching all those ideas together in ways that work. You can do all the research, but if you don't make it work in your head, you can't make it work on the page. So where, where are the holes to fill and come back in and go, well, he said that, but we don't quite understand this bit. How does that work? And then, and then working it out, because I think you know, as writers, one of the great things of sitting in a room with other writers who get it is being able to, you can talk about semicolons and people don't get bored, or you can talk <laughs> about narrative structure, or you can, or you can talk about, you know, so that we just had an hour with Howard Johns on how to create regenerative power, electricity, and all these amazing ideas that are happening around the world. How would I build a city that actually did that? And how would we get from this kind of fossil fuel addiction to that? What would the route? And if I, if I wrote this, does that sound like it would work to you? So that kind of thing. I also, I want to do a few resilience building things, because I think one of the reasons we don't have these is it challenges who we think we are. We're going to have to build a new system. And you know we, we have the old adage of no system is changed from the mindset that created it. Right. And we're in that you We know, We are in the system. There is there is no getting around that. So we're going to have to really explore our own emotional resilience so that we can write the things at the edges, but in a way that takes everybody with us. So we've got to, I want to look at framing. I want to look at all the limbic stuff that, that you and I have talked about quite a lot before, because there's no point in creating something that has the same impact as Don't Look Up. You know, Don't Look Up is now Netflix's most watched film, but the people who are watching it, the people who already got it, and the people who didn't get it, hate it with a, with a vicious and visceral passion, because what it did was say, you're all very stupid. And that's not a useful thing to do. No, it's, it's not going to change a single mind ever. We have to find ways to create stories that carry people with us, with a, a vision of a future that, that even people who think differently to us really want. So I'll stop in a minute. That's that's part two. That's the narrative um, incubator bit. And then part three is I've got people coming in on the off weeks either the Sunday or the Wednesday. So that's happening every alternate Sunday till October 16th, 13 people. In the off weeks, I've got head of a publishing house, a guy who was one of the producers of one of the Harry Potter films, uh, a really amazing theater guy, someone who does independent theater and a BBC producer of documentaries, scriptwriter for BBC documentaries, coming to say, okay, this is how I see this field, publishing, filmmaking, television, whatever. And these are the pitfalls. These are the kind of people who run it. And this is how I think you could get—if you're writing really groundbreaking stuff, this is how you could get it in front of the most people, and/or the people who will really get it and right. take it out there. Because there is no point if we get a whole generation of writers writing amazing, groundbreaking stuff, and nobody wants to make it or publish it. Then, right, if nobody we've sees was- it, it has wasted our time. Yeah. Right. What I'm hoping is that. I still believe that asking questions is in itself a radical act, and that by getting in these people from the publishing house, and and we're opening doors for them too, because right. they'll hang around, I hope, and listen a bit and realise what we're trying to do, and hopefully that'll work through. So that's almost it. I've got a mythologist, really wonderful woman called Sharon Blackie, coming to talk about the heroic journey and the post-heroic journey, and and is it so hardwired in us that we are heroes in our own narratives, and need heroes? that we have to still be at least some way within that heroic journey cycle. Um, And I'll do some spiritual stuff. I hope Daniel Thorson will come to that and also Mary Reynolds. So that's it. But yeah, wow. (laughs) (laughs) It's the best that I could think of, to because I I genuinely think if we don't start giving people visions soon, because the thing about COP was not a single person who stood up and spoke, even at the fringe things at COP, I actually had a vision of how we all go forward. into. They were all going, yes, you we need there. to stop doing stuff. You've got right. to stop burning carbon. It's great. If you, you don't give people an alternative that feels good, then they won't. And particularly not you know, when the Koch brothers and ExxonMobil and all the rest are still going, no, 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 oil is fine. Have more oil. We want to feed it to you. Um, so we've got to give people an alternative, but it's just not there. Right. So this is my hope that we can find enough people who are, keen enough to do this who knows um and and give them what they need to have the resilience and the understanding of what's already happening because it's like it's there it's being done but we just don't hear about it and giving people that knowledge can what can we actually do because the thing about people is we are massively creative if everybody got together and went you know what it's a really big problem but we can solve this and this is the world that we want we would we could get there
0: yeah. People who are listening to this are excited by the concept of Thrutopia. How do oh, they yes. become
2: involved? Yes. How do they become involved? Um, well, the website is uh, Thrutopia, spelled T-H-R-U-Topia. I should have said this is there was a paper by a lovely man called Rupert Reed, who's a philosopher and activist in the UK. He wrote it in 2017 in Huffington Post about we don't need dystopias, we don't need utopias, we need the thrutopias. So when I told him what we're doing, he said, oh, that's what you're doing. You're doing a thrutopia. So we, we've we agreed to share his term as it creating a new genre, really. So it's thrutopia.life, the same as Accidental Gods, is Accidental Gods.life. Just go there. It's all there. You can sign up. Please come along. It, it's not free because we're actually paying our speakers. Uh, And also, because this is going to be about 18 months, very hard work from Faith and me, and we need to live and pay the rent and stuff. So, um, so it's not, it's not free and I wish it were. But so, yes, if anybody's interested, uh, the key thing I think is this is not a writing course. This is not a basic writing course. We're not going to teach you how to write a novel or a film script because there's dozens of courses doing that already. We don't need another one of those. This is, I hope, unique in that we're going to help give you the tools to write the future.
0: Pretty exciting. Okay. So that's it. I hope you enjoyed this double decker episode. You got the Equiosity podcast at the beginning and a bit of my Horses for Future podcast at the end. Next time, we'll be back to our normal Equiosity podcasts. So stay safe, stay well, and have fun with clicker training. I'll close us out with the Horses for Future music instead of our usual Equiocity theme song.